Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see all of you today and to offer you a warm welcome to this worship service from Selston Baptist Church. Whether you're watching in your home uh, or one of those who are gathered in our church sanctuary, we're really pleased that you are joining us to worship our great God. We're going to be continuing to think this morning about Paul's letter to the Romans, which we've been reading in a slightly unusual way during this series, uh, starting at the end and working back. So today, uh, several weeks into our studies, we've reached chapter one. Don't worry, it all makes sense. But we hope and pray you'll be encouraged and blessed as you worship with us and as we reflect on God's word. And we'll begin our service in a moment after this week's SBC News. Sunday morning. Hello everyone watching this from SBC. <laughs> if you would like to attend the service on the 25th of October, please reply to this email or leave a message on the church office answer phone on 020-8651-4308 by 12 midday on Thursday the 22nd of October. Please state clearly your name and how many places you are booking. On, 20, on Tuesday the 20th of October at 7pm, Denzel will be bringing a gospel reflection. And on Thursday the 8th of October, join us for the next episode of SBC Chat, where Martin, or my dad, will catch up with someone from our SBC family. It's election time. No, not the US one but our SBC leadership election. Today is the last day you can get your nominations to Teresa, who will be able to collect your form in person if you cannot get to it to her or those concerns can email their consent. One of the things we value most at SBC is our wonderful partnership with International Needs and the many ways we help support them and learn from them as they seek to help families everywhere create a sustainable future. In the coming months, we will have a couple of opportunities to get behind their work. There will be more news soon about how we can su uh, support the work of Nathan Basali in Egypt. But for now, here's Martin with news of their Christmas card appeal. Here's my dad. Merry Christmas! Hi, um, you may be thinking that I've gone crazy, but wait. Um, as part of a fundraiser for international needs, uh, there's a group of young people that want to help you make Christmas more Christmassy. The idea is that you come in front of this green screen with your family or friends in your favourite Christmas jumpers. We take some photos and then we make them into Christmas cards that you can pass on to your friends and family and really make their Christmas. Uh, more information will be coming out soon, but for now, ho, ho, ho. Another, another insight is on the horizon. The deadline for November issue is the Wednesday, the 21st of October, and the magazine will be distributed by email on Thursday 29th of October. Please send your contrib contributions to the email on screen or call Eleanor at her home. Her details are in the church di directory. <laughs> directory. <laughs> Regretfully, late articles cannot be included. If you're a follower of Jesus who's been attending SBC for a while, and you think of us as your church family, can we invite you to consider the possibility of church membership? If you would like to explore this further, please speak with Tre Trevor, Denzel, Martin, or any of our deacons. 
SBCU. Yes, you guys. We are now running a Sunday youth meetup at the church from 6 p.m. until 7.30 p.m. Contract Martin for details. And finally, golden wedding congratulations to Gillian and Derek Smith and Teresa and Roger Nichols on the 24th of October. God bless you. This has been SBC News. God, God bless. bless. from Romans 1 and we're going to read from verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Let's listen to the word of God. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so the people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. 
In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for the error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. As I was thinking about this passage, I found my mind going back to a book which I read at school, and it's probably one that many of us are familiar with. My guess is that I'm not the only student who had to read Animal Farm by George Orwell. Uh, my favourite anecdote about Animal Farm uh, is of course the one about the publisher who turned it down because they said they didn't think there was much of a market for stories about animals. They really did miss the point that uh, Orwell was trying to make about communism. But if you haven't read the book, let me tell you what it's all about, uh, which you probably have a sign on the screen now saying plot spoiler. Uh, Animal Farm uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, it's a satire on communism, on the events of the Russian Revolution and how one form of tyranny was essentially replaced by another. And the book begins by telling us about the dire state of affairs on Manor Farm, run by the lazy Mr Jones, uh, a situation which brings the animals to the point of revolution. They take over the farm, they, they run it as a kind of collective enterprise, everyone having an equal say into what's happening. But then over the course of time, another hierarchy begins to emerge and some animals start to assert their dominance over others. If you know the story, you'll be aware that it's the pigs who rise to the top of the pile. In fact, they even start walking on their two hind legs. They, they become like humans. It's a brilliant way of conveying how this new society ends up in a situation where there's just as much tyranny as there was before. But here's the bit of Animal Farm, which I had in mind as I was reading Romans 1. It's a famous moment when the Seven Commandments, uh, a set of rules which the animals have agreed is the basis for how they organise their life together, is replaced by just one. Uh, and do you remember what it was? All animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. It's an absolutely brilliant phrase. Of course, it's nonsense on one level, but, but it brilliantly conveys how the pigs somehow managed to convince everyone else to let them run the farm on their terms. But I thought about this phrase because I think there's one like it, which I suspect a lot of people might subscribe to in many of our churches. And the phrase goes like this, all sins are equal, but some are more equal than others. Do you get the point I'm making? I mean, obviously, none of us would dare to utter such a thought out loud. Anyone who's been in church for any length of time ought to have grasped the idea that we're all in need of God's mercy and forgiveness. Uh, the Greek word for sin is hamartano, it conveys the idea of, of missing the mark or missing a target. Imagine I'm playing football, if you like, which might seem a stretch, but go with it. I, I imagine myself playing football all the time. If I shoot for goal and I miss, it doesn't matter if I hit the post or I hit the corner fly or anything else in between. I've still missed the target. And we could say the same thing about sin. Some of us might feel there are moments when we get fairly close to living as God would want us to, but we fall just short. Some of us might feel 
We never get near to the sort of lives which please him, but it's the same difference. We all need forgiveness. And yet, I still wonder if many of us operate with a sort of unspoken understanding that, that there are sins, and then there are sins. You know, there are the sins I might commit, perhaps the occasional bit of gluttony at the last church bringing share, the occasional moment of succumbing to materialism, like when I upgraded the TV, but I didn't have to. And then they're the really big sins, you know, not, not the ones committed by me, but the ones committed by the other people. You know, the people over there, the sexual sins, the drunken sins, the properly unrespectable stuff. And of course, this sort of thinking is very problematic in a church community. If I think of my sins as less serious than others, well, I then come to think of myself as somehow more inherently pleasing to God, less in need of his forgiveness and then I'm in a place where I can justify to myself all manner of superior feelings and this is why the divisions kick in. And I also wonder if it's those sorts of attitudes which Paul has in mind when he begins his letter to the Christians in Rome. So, so as we think about this chapter it's worth reminding ourselves for just a moment of the situation he's dealing with. Remember those divisions between the strong and the weak. Remember those Jewish Christians who uh, insist on keeping the law. Maybe they think of themselves as the privileged ones, those who've always been on the inside track. And then we have the Gentiles, the pagans, those who have only recently shown up at the party. Imagine for a moment these different types of people gathered together in one place and Phoebe shows up with her letter from Paul and right at the beginning of the letter, he makes a diagnosis. He describes the fundamental problem which faces every single one of us. It's been said that these opening chapters of Romans read like a courtroom scene. It's a scene that begins with Paul telling us about the verdict which has been passed and then going on to explain uh, the case against us, that the grounds on which that verdict has been reached and the judgment is described for us in verses 18 and 19, that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by the wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. This is not an easy read. But we need to confront ourselves with what Paul is saying here. It seems to me that we could think of these verses as explaining from God's perspective that the reasons why our response to God is so problematic for him, so offensive to him, why God is brought to this point of anger and wrath. Paul writes here about how humans have been made to bear the image of God, have been made to glorify God, how God has shown himself to us in a way which means we've no excuse for, for failing to give him back the thanks which is his due. And he goes on to explain this further in verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And what Paul goes on to describe here is a sort of downward spiral he talks about the dreadful, terrible consequences of sin. Once sin is broken into the world, once it begins to have its way, there are practically no limits to the damage, to the, the spoiling and marring of what was originally created by God. What are we to make of all of this? What lessons are there for us in here and now, in 2020, is we seek to follow Jesus. Let me leave you with three thoughts. Firstly, I'm reminded by Romans 1 of the need to take sin seriously. If we're honest, in most of our churches, we probably don't talk as much about sin as we used to, or as much as we need to, to talk about sin and judgment and God's wrath might seem like a bit of an anachronism for some of us, a bit old-fashioned and we've got beyond all of that now. 
The Romans one very quickly grabs us and, and shakes us out of any sense of complacency we might be falling into. There is a wake-up call in this passage, a reminder of just how far we've fallen, just how desperate our plight is. Sometimes we can fall into the trap of presenting the gospel in terms of answering the need we have for meaning in life or the need we have for purpose. And of course there are needs we face. But there's a reminder here that first and foremost what we need from God is forgiveness. We are estranged from him, fallen from him, and we need to be brought back into right relationship with him. We need his forgiveness and only he can do that for us. Secondly, I think Paul wants us to know in this passage that we are e all equally implicated. It is not the case that we are all sinners, but some of us are more sinful than others. And I think this is particularly important to remind ourselves of because, you know, we have to be honest, this is a very controversial passage and it contains some of the most disputed words in all of Paul's writings, all of the New Testament, these references we find in verses 26 and 27 to same-sex relationships. I don't think we can gloss over these verses. We can't minimise what is being said here, but we need to see these words in their context. Their context. There are lots of behaviours which are mentioned and judged in Romans 1, a list of 21 in all. Uh, and a number of the scholars who've written on this chapter, they describe it as reading almost like a stereotype. It's a classic Jewish rant by pagans and all the terrible things they do. It's a summing up of all the judgments which Jewish people would have been used to making and used to hearing about pagans. And yet here's the thing, any Jewish Christian listening to Phoebe, reading out this list of sins and feeling a bit smug is being prepared for a sucker punch when they get to the opening verses of chapter 2 where Paul says this, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. In other words, what Paul does is turn the tables on any of the Jews who are listening to these words and sitting in judgment on the sinful pagans in their midst. He reminds them of how much they need God's forgiveness. We're all guilty of doing these things. We can't stress this enough. If you read Romans 1 and you work your way through the list of things described, and you think, well, I might do some of these things, but I'm not as bad as the other people because they, they do worse things on the list. Well, then, sorry, you have completely missed the point of Romans 1 and you need to start again. We are all in this together, every single one of us, in need of God's love and forgiveness. And this is setting the scene for the big message of Romans, a message we've already discovered and we'll discover some more. We all need forgiveness. We all need God's welcome. And because God forgives us all on equal terms, we all belong to church on equal terms. Time is nearly gone. But there is one other thing which I think we need to pay attention to here. How, thirdly, we are reminded that sin impacts everything. Our individual lives but also the structures of the world. It seems to me that one of the mistakes we often make when we talk about sin is that we think of it only in terms of the individual mistakes we make, the private feelings which occur one person at a time. But the Bible tells a different story. It, it tells us not just of individual lives which have fallen under the curse of sin and need to be redeemed, tells us that the power structures of the world are also under the spell of sin. Sin's grip is seen everywhere so that everything needs to be redeemed. It's not just you and me who want to go to heaven. Later Paul will talk in chapter 8 of how 
Creation itself is groaning because of the impact of sin. And remember again, the first people who hear this letter read them by Phoebe in the churches in Rome. And she reads out the list of sins found at the end of this chapter, so many of which have to do with selfishness and abuse of others. Paul talks of wickedness and greed, uh, of violence. He mentions murder and strife and malice. And he ends in verse 31 on a note which feels more like despair than condemnation. It's almost plaintive. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. You know, there's no kindness, there's no decency. Reads like the perfect description of the Roman Empire, but it reads like a description of the tough, unforgiving world we live in now. The world that we experience. For, for deceit and malice, think of fake news, the terrible situation we're in where no one knows who or what to trust. For murder and strife, think of the racism, think of the hate crimes, Think of the politicians who want to divide and rule. For greed, we might want to pause and consider the way our planet has been used and abused and it results in global warming and the suffering of animals and people, even coronaviruses, which pass from animals to humans with dire consequences. All of this results just as much from sin as, as the mistakes of our personal lives. And the gospel promises redemption from all of this too. One day, a new world will come, which is rid of all the worst things we see and experience and which we do ourselves. Today's word is not an easy one to hear, but there is more to come, it gets better. And this announcement of a verdict in the courtroom turns out not to be the end of the story. Instead, it's, it's setting the scene for good news to come. But there are times when we need to pause and realise our need and hold up our hands and say sorry. Realise how empty our hands are and how little we bring to God and his table. And I think this is one of those times now. So we pause. And we come to him humbly. We offer him our worship. And then in a moment, we gather around the table. We're about to have communion. And before we eat and drink of, of the body of Christ, let us spend some time asking God to forgive us of our sins. Asking him to cleanse us and make us whole before him. Jesus. 
So here we are again. It's another one of those Sundays where we find ourselves gathering in different locations and different situations. Some of us will be in our homes, some of us will be in the sanctuary, some of us might be coming into the service of the back of what's felt to us like a good week. Others will arrive at this moment acutely aware of our mistakes, our failings, that gap between what we want to be, the sort of person we want to be, and who we know ourselves to be. And yet, as Romans 1 has reminded us, we all come to this table, to, to this meal, on equal terms. We all come as those who are guilty and need to be forgiven. We all come as those who are hungry, longing for the bread of life. We all come as those living in the midst of darkness and aware of the darkness in our hearts and longing for the light of the world to break in. Listen again to these words of invitation. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is to be made ready for those who love him and who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. Come, you who have been here often and you who have not been here for a long time. You who've tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, not because it is I who invite you. It is our Lord and it is his will that those who want him should meet him here. So let's pause for a moment and let's pray and confess and we bring to God the things we've said and done. And the things we fail to say and do. And we say sorry. And we hear again his word of assurance to us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's hear again the story of how this sacrament began. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he sat at supper with his disciples and while they were eating, he took a piece of bread, said a blessing, broke it, and gave it to them with the words, this is my body, it is for you, do this to remember me. And later he took a cup of wine saying, this cup is God's new covenant, sealed with my blood, drink from it all of you to remember me. And so now following Jesus' example and command, we take this bread and this wine, ordinary things of the world, which Christ will make special. And as he said a prayer before sharing, let's do so as well. Gratitude, praise, hearts lifted high, voices full and joyful. Lord, you deserve all of this from us. Because when we were nothing, you made us something. And when we had no name and no faith and no future, you called us your children. When we lost our way uh, or turned away, you did not abandon us. When we came back to you, your arms opened wide in welcome. And Luke, you prepare a table for us, offering not just bread, not just wine, but your very self, so that we may be filled, forgiven, healed, blessed, and made new again. You are worth all our pain and all our praise. Amen. We share bread. 
more friends gathered around a table, Jesus took bread, broke it and said, this is my body, it is for you. So let's eat and be thankful. Later he took a cup of wine and said, this is a new relationship with God made possible because of my death. Take this, all of you, to remember me. We drink and agree not to forget. And now we pause and uh, we linger at the table for a moment longer and we pray. And we pray first of all for our church family, recognising that this continues to be a challenging time for us all. We all continue to live with the impact of the lockdown in different ways. Some of us are still shielding at home, still anxious still unable to be with others in the way we long for. We wish we could see more people, do more things. Uh, some of us are out and about all the time, and perhaps we feel forced to do so because of our, our jobs or other circumstances. And all of us are feeling the strain of daily predicaments. Do we meet indoors or outdoors? Do we ask that visitor to put on their mask? We think of all the complications of moving from tier one to tier two for our city of London. And as time goes on, we feel, some of us more than others, just a strain on our well-being, mentally, emotionally, physically. Oh Lord, protect us, we pray. And remember as well the demands and concerns facing a number of us, which have nothing to do with COVID. Those of us who are grieving the loss of a loved one, those of us who are facing surgery soon. Protect us, we pray. We want to take this opportunity to pray as well for the mission of our church and especially for those who will be leading our church in the days to come. We pray for those who've been nominated for the role of a deacon. We pray for us as a church as we now have time to consider and reflect on how we will vote. Jesus, we pray, be Lord of our church. Be Lord of these important decisions we will make. And finally, we pray for our world. There is so much to pray for, so many signs that we see all around us of that downward spiral Paul writes of. Be merciful, we pray. We Pray again regarding COVID. Lord, defeat this virus, we pray. Stop its spread. God, speed. God, would you speed, we pray, the work of vaccine researchers. Give them great success. And please be with our leaders, we pray, locally and nationally. We pray for our local council in Croydon facing very significant financial pressures. We pray especially for those in our church who are working for the council in challenging circumstances. We pray for our national leaders uh, as constant and difficult decisions need to be faced all the time between protecting lives in our NHS, between protecting jobs in our economy. And finally, we pray for the United States as it goes to the polls in just two weeks time. And so many of us were watching with increasing concern as we see the rising levels of unrest and uncertainty which surround this election. We pray for a leader of that country who will lead with humility, who will bind up wounds. We pray for a result that is clear and uncontested and which creates the possibility for healing to begin. And we offer you our prayers. 
and I would go to wherever you will send us to do whatever you require us to do. Lord Jesus Christ, you've put your life into our hands. Now we put our lives into yours. Take us, renew us and remake us. What we've been has passed. What we shall be through you still awaits us. Lead us on. Take us with you. Amen. We bow down and confess you are Lord in this place. friends thank you again for joining us i hope and pray you've had a sense of god's nearness to you as we've gathered to worship and that you have that same sense for the rest of today and in the coming week it would be great to see you in the foyer in a moment if you have time to join us there as we share together about what's happening in our lives and also as we reflect together on this week's sermon and if you don't have time to join us, but you have a question, please just let us know and we'll take time to think about it in one of those up and coming podcasts. But for now, let me pray for you a blessing. Friends, I pray that in the coming week, you would know afresh the light of God shining, helping to guide you and make you 
unafraid. I pray you would know the power of God to make you strong. I pray you would know the grace of God to keep you loving all who you meet, all with whom you share life. Amen. Bye for now, friends. God bless, and I'll see you soon.